0: Welcome to the Loose Women in Pharma podcast, a place for inspiration, support and ideas to help shape how our industry evolves for womankind. So, hello, Miriam
1: is 2023 treating you so far? Actually, it's pretty good. Um, After we got through the cloudy grayness of the first couple of weeks, I've enjoyed the weather, the beautiful mornings, the skies of different colors, and just felt, although it's been freezing, it's just felt like, like lots of possibility ahead. And of course, last week, we had our first Women in Pharma Webinar events, our first offering to the community, so that was really exciting milestone as well. How about you? Awesome. Yeah, no, we've had some quite nice feedback
0: um from that as well, haven't we? So that's available um in various places on LinkedIn. You can get, get a link to it and have a listen. So if you if you missed it, do have a listen. Sim and I'm loving the weather is just this cold yet clear oh my goodness it's just making my heart sing I absolutely love it and I just feel like I have a really great energy um you know for for what's for what's to come I think after that December a bit you know energy levels dipping January is such a time of renewal I absolutely uh love
1: brilliant it. so no blue Monday nonsense for us then Exactly. <laughs> so I'm excited about this week's uh, episode, this month's episode, I should say. So we've called this episode Unmet Needs in
0: Women's Health, Hidden in Plain Sight. And this relates to um, Pillar three of our Women in Pharma mission, which is to help our industry evolve better to serve women's health. And this is very much inspired by the uh, Women's Health Strategy for England 2022, which was published um, last year in August. And it provides really important context for this um, episode. It's also relevant outside England. And I just wanted to start off by just reading out a little extract. Although women in the UK on average live longer than men, women spend significantly a significantly greater proportion of their lives in ill health and disability when compared with men. Not enough focus is placed on women-specific issues like miscarriage or menopause, and women are underrepresented when it comes to important clinical trials. This has meant they not enough known about the conditions that only affect women or about how conditions that affect both men and women impact on them in different ways. So that seemed like a really important uh, uh, piece to just, to just connect with. Um, and it's even more um, important because these strategy recommendations were based on responses from over 100,000 individual women, which is just remarkable that over 100,000 women felt the need to um, respond, and over 400 submissions from organizations and experts. And one of the really key insights was that 84% of respondents thought that women's voices had not been listened to in the past. So we've called this episode, Unmet Needs in Women's Health, Hidden in Plain Sight, because the evidence is there, but it hasn't always been heard or captured in a way that drives action.
1: We have our lovely guest, Hannah Marcus, joining us. Hannah is a market researcher who has been involved in some incredible work on unmet needs in women's health. And by the way, this report was submitted as part of the consultation on the women's health strategy that Sarah was just mentioning. Hannah's work with Discover AI has also shone a light on periods for the charity Bloody Good Periods menopause for the charity over the bloody moon and the very taboo topic of vaginal pain i don't know what bloody name they would give themselves but anyway (laughs) welcome hannah hello thank you so much for having me um i'm really excited to be here fantastic so we're creating this podcast for the brilliant women who work in the pharma health and biotech world many are in a position to make a positive difference to shape women's health and feel really driven to do so. Has your work on unmet needs been consistent with this idea that women's health needs are often hidden in plain sight? In other words, they're not seen, heard, or even captured.
2: Um, well, you'll be surprised to hear that, like, yes, absolutely. That is the sort of thing that we've seen. Um, and I think, actually, um, the thing that's really illustrative of that was actually how and why we decided to do the unmet needs project in the way that we did. Because um, the group that that came to me initially that we collaborated with, the Women's Health Tech Hive, they wanted to create this landscape of all of these unmet needs in women's health. So not looking on a condition specific basis, which is how it had sort of been done before, but more go sort of what can we do across the landscape. And they initially. Um, Many of their network came from pharma or sort of um, clinical health backgrounds. And so their first step was to do an academic literature review and look at the clinical data. But then they had this challenge of if you're looking for the gaps, then you're sort of trying to fill in, you know, what isn't there? Like, how do you look at all the data there is and then go, well, this is how much is is missing? And so what we ended up doing was using a methodology that... um, lets you look across lots of online data and look across like communities and activists and forums to see what people are talking about in these much less formal, much less professionalised spaces. And I think that's this idea of hidden in plain sight is kind of exactly speaks to that, because it's not that we don't know. It's not that it's not being talked about. It's just it's not being talked about in the formal literature settings, um, which are so defined by you know, where the funding goes and, and things like that To So so this idea of how could we harness unmoderated voices and places where people were going to ask for help or tips and tricks to solve these different problems was actually where we'd find what those unmet needs were in the first place.
1: So as a very evidence-based industry, we're always looking at the data, but your 2020 report on unmet needs in women's health explains that there's this data gap in women's health. So. Can you go into a bit more detail about what that means and, and how big this problem is?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a difficult question to, to give a size to it, I think, without this is a very qualitative report. And you sort of, once you start finding the gap, you find more and more and more. But I think the way that I like to think about it is to um, almost divide it into two types of health gaps. Um, and the first is that there are health conditions which impact women and people with vaginas, vulvas, cervixes, breasts, oestrogen, which are often put under the umbrella of women's health, but are often only considered in terms of how they relate to reproductive health or life stages or fertility or things like that. And even then, that's not perfect because uh, when things go wrong and people need support with infertility or miscarriage, then those areas are often considered taboo. And, and these areas are underfunded underfunded they're under researched they're often considered taboo topics even when they're just sort of part of normal everyday life um, so for example there's been quite a lot of attention on endometriosis um, at the moment so um, body form have been doing great work raising awareness of that with their womb stories and pain stories campaign but also um, um, people like Emma Barnett coming out and talking about her experience with endometriosis and um, you know, You learn about these things about how there's like a seven year diagnosis timeline before people find out that that's what they have. But also, you know, in Emma Barnett's case, the way that she found it out was that she was trying to conceive and that's when she discovered that she had this condition. So it all gets kind of put into boxes and sometimes there's money and sometimes there's awareness, but not enough and not always in the right places. And then on the other side, there's conditions which affect people of all genders, heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia. I mean, I'm not going to list every health condition that there is. Um, And these are the spaces where it's been shown by I mean, there's lots of figures talking about this. But the work of Caroline Criado Perez and her book Invisible Women, I think, is particularly big Mm -hmm. there. And that's where. we see research and data and clinical trials focusing on uh, men's bodies and using them to stand in as a kind of default for um, everyone, basically. So um, one of the examples that in the health space that um, got quite a lot of attention was the idea that um, heart attack symptoms look different in uh, a male body than they do in a female body. So the traditional symptoms, um, yeah, the traditional symptoms um, don't, show up in the same way. And so therefore people aren't being diagnosed as quickly or even at all. And that creates massive health risks. So I think when thinking about the size of the gap, it's thinking about both Mm. women's health under this kind of initial umbrella versus health that impacts women and how those voices can be included.
1: Wow. So literally, I mean, there's so many areas for for exploration here, isn't there? Um, It's just, you know, a whole of our health. So, I mean, as an industry, we're really good at collecting and making sense of data. Um, What could the pharma industry do to help fill in these data
2: gaps that exist? Um, So I think thinking about um, the importance of having that sex disaggregated data in trials and in research, making sure to, um, prioritize that, but also thinking about well, what's the impact of collecting that sort of information. So I, I was reading about, um, Danone disease recently, which is a congenital heart condition. And that's one where it's quite well known. I think that the impact of it is different in men and women. And it's, it's, considered to be more severe in men um, the symptoms are different they they, but they also show up much younger because they're more severe so it's still diagnosed much later in women but the symptoms are different and considered to be less severe so it's about both including that data but then considering what assumptions you make about what to do with it and where to focus once you've collected that data and I think also thinking about what type of research is funded as well and I think um, You know, it's interesting as we've seen the rise in journalistic science and sort of people looking to chase headlines, but also uh, journal process as well. Um, There's a lot of emphasis on finding something new and finding something groundbreaking. And actually, a lot of science needs to be about checking your work and revisiting research that's already been done and getting someone new to do it again. So, how do you convince people to fund a study that's already been done, but with a new group of people or with a new? demographic or with a new emphasis so it's also saying you know why are we always chasing something completely new when actually you could find something new um, from that and then i think um also being really cognizant that different people are at a different at different points in this uh, journey and how do you make the business case internally to say look it's really important that we do this from a from an ethical perspective, but also because we'll be reaching more people, and that's actually beneficial to everyone in the long run. Mm.
0: And some of the, some of those areas you've um, you've you've talked about sound like you know there's really great opportunities. Um, you know, when I was reading your report about. Uh, some of the data gaps, um, I was really interested in the, the gaps to do with, you know, taking a gendered approach to innovation um, or, you know, this being part of a personalized medicine approach. And that's something that, you know, we just hear so much about. Um, and so I was just really interested in, you know, in some of the things that you'd you learnt about um you know, having a gendered approach in the in innovation or, or how that might fit with personalized medicine?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, I think I've seen more examples of that in the research I've done since the report, but there's some really interesting companies doing things with either kind of genetically coded medicine, um, So, um, for example, there's a study that Dharma Health are doing at the moment where they're trying to research whether contraceptive side effects are impacted by people's genetics. And, um, yeah, they've got a study out at the moment on that that's going to be really interesting. And that's for um, eventually they want to provide personalized solutions. There's people doing really interesting things with the vaginal microbiome. So there's companies that want to help people um, track and define their uh, vaginal microbiome and then give guidance on what type of supplements or what type of um, health they should be doing for that. I mean, um, again, it, it's not quite pharma, but for example, if you look at like, companies like Elvi or Willow that are looking at not just biological needs, but also lifestyle needs and then saying, well, what people need is a portable Breast pump and a Kegel machine to help them with incontinence postpartum, and you know that's as much coming from principles of human centered design. Thinking about well, who's the person that you're? Um, who's the person that your um, that your audience is? What do they need? What's the impact of them? I saw someone was working on something really interesting. It was just a prototype. I think they were Cambridge consultants, but it was. Um, a prototype for a cooling case for IVF medication so that you could take your injections with you so that you didn't have to be in your house um and so they'd found that people who are undergoing IVF already felt very isolated and that was increased by the fact that they were kind of trapped in their homes at certain times to do these injections so they hypothesized that if you innovated so that they could take the injections with them that would immediately normalize it get rid of the stigma and give them that freedom to move elsewhere. Um, so yeah, I've seen a lot happening in kind of this technology and living and, 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 and centered design in that way that I think is really interesting so there's 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 lots
0: of unmet needs and just to go back to those those data gaps and you sort of mentioned um an, a, quite an interesting um area there when you were talking about um contraception, I noticed that one of your data gaps was this idea that women are expected to deal with side effects that are a no uh, a no go for men and that seems quite um you know uh both obvious but sort of dreadful when you see it written down.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of the discourse around when will we get the male pill, when will there be male contraception has um, included this element of what what's seen as acceptable for some people and not seen as acceptable for other people. And I actually, this is a bit of a, a left field metaphor, but I'm um, I was doing, when I was doing my master's, I did some research into um, subtitles and in television subtitles. And I was looking at how, I don't know if you've noticed, but they've massively improved over the past few years with streaming services. They used to be block capitals and now they're, they float around the screen. They're really readable. They're really great. And, but what's really interesting is that when you surveyed people who were hard of hearing and needed the subtitles back when they were horrible and clunky, they still expressed really high rates of satisfaction with them because the alt- they were just better than the alternative. But then once they became under universal design principles and more people wanted them, they started to improve. Um, and now they're much better. And so I think with things like contraception, there's this sense of, well, you know, it's better than nothing. And at least it works. And that's what I'm judging it by. But I think what people really should be judging it by is, is this an acceptable standard? Should, like, we don't have to be grateful for having a thing that's a right. We can actually say, well, maybe I don't want side effects and maybe um, the standards should just be higher for everyone. Um, so, um, yeah, a bit, a bit of a left field comparison, but um, it really, it, I'm sort of writing the subtitle essay, but thinking about my pill the whole time. So, um
0: and and you mentioned there about, you know, that some of these, uh, you know, that we don't hear about these unmet needs because women are embarrassed or it's, you know, very stigmatizing. I suppose, you know, we've had the kind of menopause revolution and it's now, you know, it's now OK to talk about your menopausal symptoms. And, uh, you know, there's been a kind of bit of a revolution in that area. But why do you think that women feel so embarrassed and ashamed why you know why 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 is this culture of um of embarrassment why is it out there well
2: that's is that do you want the long answer or the short answer because you oh, know the medium size one. yeah you <laughs> well just, you know the short answer is just the patriarchy so you know a, um you know i think that um there's a there's a philosopher who I really like who theorizes about misogyny, and um, she talks about separating men and women into human beings and human givers and the idea is that human beings are expected to take masculine coded goods, which is sort of um, you know authority status uh, sort of being taking up space, and human givers mainly women are expected to to give feminine coded goods of um being nice, calm, pretty, caring, uh, not causing any trouble. And um, she describes misogyny as the function of basically rewarding people for staying in their lanes or punishing people who try to take or give goods from the other side, which I think is really interesting. And I think that when it intersects with healthcare becomes really interesting because if you're always expected to care for other people and you're never expected to make a fuss, how does that interact with well, I'm in pain. I can't give what's needed. I, you know, making a fuss, uh, being sick is a, you know, you, you ooze, you sweat, you, you're not nice or calm or pretty or pleasant. You're in a bad mood. It's sort of almost inherently unfeminine to be ill under that kind of, um, and, you know, it's not really like that in real life, but I think those kinds of sentiments really, um, in bed, And then, you know, things like the menstrual taboo specifically, you know, if from the age of 12, you're being told that you bleed every month and every month you're disgusting, you know, that's something that people internalize and will impact how they interact with um, other people, healthcare professionals, workplace, um, everything like that.
0: That was a that was a very good medium medium sized <laughs> medium sized answer to, the, to that, uh, that 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 surprise question. So over the last thirty years, I've I've read loads and loads and loads of clinical papers, probably thousands. Um, and of course, you know, you always look at virtually equal numbers of men and women. That's the sort of stuff that you're that you're always having a having a look at. But, what I was quite surprised about was when I was recently reading um that many trials in the past have excluded women or assumed women's bodies are the same as men's but just smaller or not deaggregated the data and that's probably something that um you know that I haven't really particularly looked for in in the past you know to see if the drugs that we might be working um on perform differently in men and women, so that was a big um, big surprise to me. What do you think, how women in pharma listeners, who you know don't work specifically in women's health, so they might be working on a condition um, that equally affects men and women, or you know roughly equally. What, what sort of things should they be thinking about or asking for when they're commissioning clinical trials or analysing um, clinical studies?
2: Um, yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting question, and it's not. You know, It's not my area of expertise, so I, I might speak quite broad brush with it. But again, to use, use an analogy from a different um, sector, I used to work quite a lot with um, software engineers. And when I first started working with them, I would ask them for developments and things that I needed in the piece of technology that we were building. And they would say, no, you can't have that. It's impossible. And I would say, OK, I believe you. It's your job. I don't know. And then six months later, my boss would say, we need this thing. And they'd go, oh, well, okay, we'll go build it. And I was like, well, I thought I couldn't have that. And as I sort of developed a better relationship with them, I learned that what they were doing was saying, not no, it's impossible, as in it's physically impossible. They were saying, no, we've calculated that it's too hard for the amount of time and money that you want to spend on this thing. And so we're just going to say no, because we don't think that you want to invest in it. And I think you know, when thinking about commissioning clinical trials or thinking about them when when you come up against these barriers that are we can't disaggregate this data or we can't include women or we can't include pregnant women learning enough of the language and the reasons that people say no and what does that actually mean to go well we're going to ask you to do this thing that is harder than the thing that you've done before? And what what does it mean to try to include hormonal cycles instead of something? You, what does that change about the data? What time does it add? Uh, what difficult will, difficulties will it bring at the analysis on the other end? And sort of assume everyone's on the same page from a sort of ethical barrier, you know, almost go, I know that you agree with me that we must disaggregate the data. Now let's look at the challenges and barriers to it and solve together how to how to bring them. And actually, I think you can almost get further with that than sort of saying, I know you don't really want to do it. And, you know, and I'm not saying that's what people are like, but just, I think when working with people who there are these practical barriers and they're not good enough reasons to not do it, but that doesn't mean it's not hard. And I think recognizing that and looking at the approaches
0: i think there's been some great um work done in recent times on designing clinical trials around the needs of patients and actually including uh patients in the trial in the trial design so that their um their unmet needs can be more more met you know that's something which has definitely um been happening in in recent um years so you know that idea of thinking Oh, does our medicine work differently at different stages of um, a woman's cycle, or um, you know, asking it, even if it works differently in men and women is 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 a really um, is a really important thing for us to sort of start thinking about, and and hopefully that's something that in our podcast um and all the other things that we're doing that we'll be exploring a bit a bit more um, in the future um are you are you aware Hannah of any um trials or that take account of those cyclical variations you know in uh you know particularly just a normal cyclical variations or even studies that um are you know looking into um you know do they take into account the fact that women might be using hormonal co- contraception? Is that something
2: that is being talked about? Do you know? I mean, I think it's definitely starting to be talked about. Again, its um, I think there are probably people who could speak better than me on the actual specific trials that are, that are happening. I did see a company called Hormona literally today just released a paper looking at the impact of testing hormones in clinical trials and the efficacy over that. So I think that'd be really interesting to to look into that and see what they're um, saying. I think that the contraception piece is really interesting because, you know, what I've observed in um, an adjacent space, for example, is that you're now seeing a lot of um, fitness apps and skincare brands who are starting to say, well, let's, let's attune your exercise to your cycle, or let's give you skincare that's attuned to your cycle. And um, that's a really good and interesting thing to think about. Again, it's not one size fits all, it sort of flows. But at the same time, you know, I can't use them because I'm on the pill. So they don't, they've sort of gone, right, it's great that we're now thinking about hormones but they've only gone as far as kind of natural hormones and your luteal phase to your uh i can't remember the names of the other phases but you know the other phases see if i were doing it more i would recommend the phases so i sort of think well if they're not doing that in these consumer spaces you know how would you how would that translate to to the more pharmaceutical spaces and also because there are lifestyle barriers as well like if i um, if I had to stop my contraception to join a clinical trial, would I choose to take that break in my life? And particularly if, you know, if I'm using it to treat fibroids or PCOS and endometriosis, you know, it's not just about pregnancy. Um, then the impact of me stopping that to be part of a trial might be even great, you know, a greater impact on my health. That means that I might not choose to. So, you know, there's the there's the barrier on the science side and there's the barrier to participation on the um on the patient side as well, which you know. Also, if I'm pregnant, am I gonna? We need more pregnant people in clinical trials. I understand why pregnant people don't want to be in clinical trials. So, you know, there's some there's some really big challenges to overcome. I think mm. it it's kind of just huge, isn't it? It's huge. You know, you sort of think unmet needs
0: in women's health, and as soon as you start digging, it's just absolutely, you know so 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 um uh much that um y- you know so much opportunity isn't there to to make things better because it's all been kind of ignored a little bit um, in in the past
2: yeah yeah absolutely um and i think just one one interesting shift that i'm seeing is um you know the women's health strategy was brilliant and the fact that it's been launched is like an amazing step forward I think for this in the UK. But some interesting criticisms of it I've seen is that it's still very focused on specific conditions or sort of specific moments where people might have a health issue and, and an intervention. And something that I was recently doing some work with Bloody Good Period looking at the everyday experiences of menstruation. And and the thing that they're really trying to make people talk about more is sometimes these conditions aren't linked to a specific issue or a specific illness or a specific life stage, but it's something that, that goes across a whole life and ebbs and flows and takes different experiences. And I think uh, this idea of how can healthcare start taking a life course view instead of a life stage view is a really interesting um, shift that I'm I'm really interested to see how more people start to take that on.
1: That would be amazing um you could just I mean medicine's already quite fragmented anyway isn't it you know it's like you're a psychiatrist or you're a psychologist or you're a cardiologist and you're a cardiac surgeon and everyone's kind of already splintered into many many pieces and trying to get people to work in that more holistic way seems like you know a a big uh, shift really that we need to make but um I think that's really the the direction we have to go in because we are whole beings and we're those whole beings for our whole lives. So um, hopefully, hopefully, at least with the setup of some women's centers that have that holistic view, that will be at least a step forward. Um, so I know you've been also interested in the experience of periods, menopause and vaginal pain. What have been your personal observations about the information and education available? given that periods and
2: menopause do affect actually half the population. Um yeah, really good question. I think that something something that came out in that initial report that's really important to remember when talking about these gaps and, and information available is that sometimes it's that there's no information, there's not been research. And sometimes it's that there is research, but it's not evenly distributed and it's not available because the education programs aren't good enough or because people who live in areas that are less well served by schools or healthcare or, or things like that don't have access to it. And on top of that, I think the the role of stigma and shame, meaning that information isn't in the public eye, means that people are often finding things out for themselves for the first time, sort of, you know, almost reinventing the wheel every time someone starts their period, because, you know, it's not clear that you can just go and you have this consistent experience. So I think when thinking about intervening, it's this mix of where do we already know the answer and we just need to make sure that everyone knows the answer versus we need to do new research and, and find out new things. And um, something something that I've been thinking about a lot is um, there's a, I saw a product called Tina that I think is being launched in Germany and it's for um, people who are pre so they've not had their first periods, but they can start um, doing temperature tracking, you know, the way that the fertility apps also have these so you can track your temperature and it says that it can help predict when the first ever period is going to come. And so, you know, the idea of having a, a a nine, 10, 11 year old actually already sort of thinking and anticipating about their hormonal changes in their body to the point where, you know, your first period isn't this kind of big dramatic surprise. Mine came on Halloween. It was like a whole thing, but you know, um, I think we'll, In the same way that I am really conscious that I'm so aware of menopause so many years before, you know, it's coming from me in a way that my mother wasn't, to think that, you know, my children might sort of know when their first period might be and it not be the scary, traumatic thing, something that everyone just normalises, I think, um, is a really interesting Mm. shift that could be coming.
1: Gosh, so I could just imagine, you know, someone being obsessed with it all and measuring temperature all the time and oh you know it's it's a fine balance isn't it like knowledge and and then just I don't know um relaxing into the natural flow of life Excuse use the pun um <laughs> mm. <laughs> so um we could talk all day and obviously this is all really fascinating um so much of this was new to me which is kind of ridiculous really considering i've been a woman a female my whole life and yet you know this has felt quite you know an amazing shock and insight in a lot of ways and and really quite sad in many cases um i mean it seems to me that we need to listen to women um Even universal experiences may have no evidence base or data to support them, and I think what you've done, looking online and looking at the conversations that are having, has been a a great way of of tuning in, which is fantastic. Um, I think people can be more open online, can't they, than in you know when they're talking to people in person? Um, And clearly, there's a huge opportunity to make a difference to the lives of women. Most pharma companies have making a difference as as one of their purpose in some form of words um so there's definitely an opportunity for them for us to invest and to do some wonderful work and I think we need to help lead the way here don't we as women in pharma because I don't think it's something that's probably in the consciousness certainly not in the motivation of of most male leaders probably because you know it wasn't really in our scope of knowing the world until relatively recently. So um, Hannah, thank you so much for talking to us today, for sharing the fantastic work you've been doing and are continuing to do. Um, You've certainly inspired us and set us a challenge because one of our three pillars is around shaping the industry for women's health in the future. So uh, you've certainly sparked us with some different ideas there. So I hope there'll be many people listening who've been inspired to find out more Um, and to do some things differently and I hope we've sparked some ideas too so thanks for joining us it's been a pleasure to hear about your work
2: well thank you for having me
0: thanks for listening if you haven't done so already why not join our linkedin group the loose women in pharma podcast is a women in pharma production